At this point, Archelaus reigned in Jerusalem. He had his uh, capital, I believe, set up, uh, maybe it was in Caesarea, but, but he had the authority and he, again, was of Jewish descent, so the scepter is still in the hands of the Jews at this point, right? Well, Archelaus was at first attempting to be gracious to the Jews. They came to him when he took over ruling, and he was there in Jerusalem, and they came. They were in the temple courts there, and they came to him, and they began to ask him for different things. They asked him for lowered taxes. They asked him for a number of different things, and he he granted the first few requests. But then they kept asking for more, and eventually he's like, I can't, this is too much. And so a riot began to break out, so he called for the Roman soldiers, and the Roman soldiers got carried away and killed 3,000 Jews there. It was the Passover holiday, and there was just this mass riot, and 3,000 Jews were killed. How do you think this would make all of Jerusalem feel about Archelaus? If your son, your father, your uncle got killed by the Roman soldiers because he told them to. Then a little bit later, he was ruling over Samaria, and there was some big uh, uproar over Mount, uh, the mountain where they had their temple, and he again had a bunch of the Samaritans, Samaritans murdered. And because of this, both the Samaritans and Jews were very frustrated with Archelaus, frustrated to the point where finally they sent ambassadors to Caesar Augustus in Rome, and they said, look, you've got to get rid of this guy. This guy the problem. We don't want him ruling over us anymore. Would you just give us a Roman procurator? So Caesar Augustus says, well, that's kind of a good idea. I can send somebody to be there in Jerusalem, and he can actually be Rome's hand in Jerusalem, and we can have more of a province there. And so Copinicus, who to come and be the first, the first procurator there in Jerusalem. This was the moment in 86 where the Sanhedrin rent their clothes, they put on sackcloth, and they put ashes on their head because they said, no longer do we have the authority as the Sanhedrin. One of his first things that the procurator did was to take away their authority to enact the death decree. No longer could they say, well, you're breaking the laws of Moses, so you're going to be put to death. And because they could no longer make that determination, they decided that this was a problem. The scepter has departed from Judah, and there's no longer a lawgiver here, and yet the Messiah has not come. But he had come. Jesus was born. Jesus was about 10 years old at that point. Before long, he would be coming to Jerusalem, and he would actually be there himself, if only they had believed and trusted In the word of God. And these were men who of all people should have known to trust in the word of God. What went wrong for them? And it's crucial for us to understand what went wrong for them. Because this Christmas season, I want you to think about something. Sometimes we look back and we think about how the Jews missed Jesus and what were they thinking? How could they have done that? But Jesus says something to us. Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 24. Jesus talking about the signs of the end, the things that are going to be taking place. He says something that is frightening to me, that that should drive us to an urgency in our seeking after God. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 24. 
It says for this, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even who? The elect. There's coming an overmastering deception, a deception that will be so real to us that Jesus says, if it were possible, even those who are closest followers of me would be deceived. So what I have to know is, how do I avoid the mistake that the Jews made? How do I not miss Jesus? He's coming back soon. We know He's coming soon. How do I make sure that my heart is ready for my King? This Christmas, there's no more important question to ask than that. Is my heart ready for the King of Kings? Is He living in my heart? Well, go with me to Romans chapter 10, where it gives us a little picture of why it was that they missed Jesus. Romans chapter 10, Paul has just gone into explaining how there's been a partial hardening of Israel. And in verse 1, he says this, he has a heart for all of Israel. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. But then verse 2 says this, For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal for God. There can be no denying, Paul says, that the Jews have an intense zeal for God. I mean, do you realize what took place after the Babylonian captivity? When they come back and you have Zerubbabel come back, you have Nehemiah, come back, they restored the temple worship in Jerusalem. Everything changed for the Jews. From then on, they no longer were tempted to worship idols. After thousands of years of having been tempted to worship idols, no longer was that a stumbling block for them anymore. They were faithful to follow what they believed the law said. In fact, they began to set up a system to ensure faithfulness. In every city where there was at least 10 Jews, which began to expand in the the coming centuries, but this is around 300 BC, they began to establish synagogues. If there was 10 Jews, Jewish males within that city, then they would have a synagogue. And there were synagogues throughout Judah, throughout Judea, throughout the, the area, wherever Jews went, there were synagogues. And these synagogues were set up specifically so that they could make sure that they avoided the mistake that their fathers had made again and again, turning away from God. And they would go into this service in the synagogue, and they would start off by chanting the Shema. They would all say it together. The Lord our God, He is one. The Lord, Lord, He is our God. He is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. They would say this together. Then they would go through reading the law. Now the law was specifically the Torah, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. And they would read through that every three years. So they would have somebody come up to the front of the synagogue and he would get up there with, with uh, his, the, 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 the scroll of the Torah and he would read a portion from the Torah, enough so that they could read it through three times or once every three years. Then after him, they would, they would have some singing of psalms, or there's different, different orders that it might have gone in. But then they would have a reading from the prophets. Might have been from Isaiah. Might have been from Jeremiah. Different places that 
Uh, some people uh, viewed as a little less important than reading from the law, but they still held it as the inspired word of God. Then after that, they would have the elder or uh, the person who was there who was uh, a specially respected authority in the law, he would come and he would sit down at the front of the synagogue and he would give a sermon. He would begin to expound upon the part that was read from the prophets. And at this time, the, the Bible you know, had been written in Hebrew, but the common tongue was coming to be Aramaic because you had uh, the Persian Empire influence and you had these things going on so the, the language was changing and so they would translate all of the reading of the law and the prophets. So you imagine this is the first time in history where God's people are especially exposed to his word on a weekly basis. Every Sabbath they go to the synagogue and they go and they, they read and they hear the word of God. And this, this is a powerful thing. It's not something that that, that we should say shouldn't be done. And yet something took place in their experience that led them to miss the Messiah. Today, we have church. We come and we read from the Bible. We come and we talk about the Bible. We study the Bible. But Jesus says in the end that there will be false Christs that arrive and that even the elect could be almost deceived. How do we avoid that? You think about what these Jews were like. They were faithful in their worship. They began to, to celebrate the Sabbath with a rigor that had never been seen before. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17 was a passage that they particularly interpreted as being important with regards to the Sabbath. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 24. And it shall be if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work in it. Then shall enter the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses. They and their princes accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this city shall... Remain forever. They read promises like this and they said, Well, we've got to really guard the Sabbath. And so, as week by week they began to expound on the law, this body of tradition began to build. They began to make rules around the Sabbath to make it even safer. They would make it so you could only walk so far, so you could only do certain types of things in order that we could be very careful about keeping the Sabbath. In fact, it eventually was said that if only one Jew kept the Sabbath perfectly, that the Messiah would come. That was their hope. They said if we could just keep the Sabbath perfectly, then the Messiah would come. You talk about tithing. You think about what Jesus said to them. You tithe the mint and the cumin. You go through your plant and you take every tenth leaf off of it and you take it to the temple as your tithe. They were diligent about their tithes, their offerings. They were diligent about the Sabbath. They were guarding these things so carefully. In fact, they were also sharing, and we're going to talk more about that in a coming week, but they were proselytizing. Jesus even mentions it. They were making disciples of other nations. They were sharing about God. And yet somehow, they were prepared century by century 
to miss Jesus. Does this sink in for you? Does this sound familiar at all to what we do on a weekly basis? I mean, we come in here, we hear a sermon, we, we keep the Sabbath, we uh, pay tithes and offerings, and is it possible that we too could be missing Jesus? Is it possible that, that we too might not be ready for his coming? I don't want that to be the case. And so I believe that it's important that we understand what God has for us today. Prophets and Kings, page 708, says this, Through messages such as those borne by Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, as well as, those, uh, as through oppression from heathen foes, the Israelites finally learned the lesson that true prosperity depends upon obedience to the law of God. They recognized the importance of the law. They began to follow the law diligently. But then it goes on to say this, But with many of the people... Obedience was not the outflow of faith and love. Their motives were selfish. Back in, in Romans chapter 10, remember what we read in Romans chapter 10 and verse 2, talking about how they were keeping the law, they had a zeal for it. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but, accor- but not according to knowledge. They have a passion for God. They understand that they need to be passionate about following His law, but they don't really know God. They don't have a real knowledge of who God is. Verse 3 continues, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They missed the point of what all of the laws, all of the things that they were following, what all of them were pointing to. And they did these things with good reason. You know, as the Greeks came through and defeated the Persian Empire, Alexander the Great came sweeping through, Greek culture began to influence Judaism. And some of the Jews thought that this was a good thing. They were called the Hellenists. And they thought, this is wonderful. Greek culture, it has a lot of exercise. They play these games. And then they have all these cool gods that, that are, are interesting and myths and legends. And, and so they were the Hellenists that they thought, well, let's just incorporate more and more of the Greek language, the Greek culture into all that we do. Let's, let's bring that in. Some others called the Hasidim, They were very anti to this, and they began to revolt against this. You may have heard of the the revolt of the Maccabees. They actually began to fight back against this, to press back against this, and to say, no, we've got to remain faithful to the Bible. We've, We've done this too many times before. We need to set up systems and make sure that we are faithful to the Bible. And it's because of this that you find about 120 B.C. that a group arises called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were set up in order to be faithful to the Word of God, to make sure that they were ready for the Messiah, to make sure that they were following all the things that God had told them to do. The Pharisees were set up for a noble and a good purpose. And yet, when you read through the Gospels, who are the ones who are persecuting Jesus? It's the scribes and the Pharisees. They're the ones who missed Jesus most clearly. So how do we avoid the same fate that the Pharisees had? How do I make sure that my heart is ready 
for Jesus. Continuing in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, it says this. After saying that they didn't submit to the righteousness of God, they went about trying to establish their own righteousness. It says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It says the whole purpose, the whole point of the law is to point us to the Messiah. The whole point of everything within Scripture is to lead us to Jesus. Jesus is the goal of all of Scripture. It was about having a knowledge of God, but they went about in their own selfishness trying to guard and trying to establish their own righteousness, and they failed miserably. But the good news is that none of us needs to fall into that same error. All of us can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, and we can have an entirely different experience. Because around this same time, I imagine that it might have been around 86, when you have the Sanhedrin who are there, and they are mourning over the fact that they no longer have a ruler sitting on the throne in Jerusalem specifically, and that they're no longer able to enact the death penalty. At that same time, there was a young man who was probably about 10 and a half, maybe 11 years old. He was off in the wilderness and he too was studying the prophecies of the Bible. He too was reading through his Bible and he was looking around at, 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 at nature and he was beginning to come to a knowledge of God for himself. From the time he was young, he lived in the wilderness, Scripture tells us. But if we go back to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2 and we, we read verse 22. Verse 23 tells us why it was that, that Jesus was taken to Nazareth. It says, And he, he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that he might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. God used this fear that Joseph had of who Archelaus was, this terrible ruler, to take baby Jesus into Nazareth rather than to raise him in Bethlehem. That's why he grew up in Nazareth, was because they were afraid of Archelaus. But after this, Archelaus is taken away. He's taken off to to what we would know as France today, off to Gaul. He's deported, and there's a procurator brought in. And verse 1 of chapter 3 says this, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Praise the Lord, somebody got it. Somebody was watching the signs of the time. Somebody was seeing what was going on. John was observing what was taking place. And as he saw that there was no longer a ruler in Jerusalem, he recognized something, that the Messiah had been born. We know that he didn't have any interaction with his cousin, Jesus, because God revealed to him that whoever the Spirit descended on after the baptism, that that was going to be the Messiah. He didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah as he was growing up. They didn't have that type of interaction, even though they were cousins. In the book, Desire of Ages, it records how, how John the Baptist was, uh, page 103, it says, with odd yet exultant spirit, John the Baptist searched in the prophetic scrolls the revelation of the Messiah's coming. 
He was searching through the Old Testament law. He was reading through it for himself, not based on what some scribe sitting at the front of the church was interpreting to him. He was sitting there and he was reading the scrolls for himself in the wilderness. The promised seed that should bruise the serpent's head, Shiloh, the peace giver, who was to appear before a king should cease to reign on David's throne. Now the time had come. A Roman ruler sat in the palace upon Mount Zion. By the sure word of the Lord, already the Christ was born. John the Baptist, seeing the exact same sign that the Sanhedrin mourned over, was able to look at it with faith and to say, praise the Lord, I know the Messiah is here because the Bible is faithful. Because I know in whom I have believed. The time has come. The Messiah is here. And he began to prepare his heart. And eventually he goes out preaching saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can believe this because of the signs. You can believe this because of the prophecies in Daniel that led to this moment. You can believe this because there is no longer a scepter in Shiloh. Truly, Shiloh must have come. I want to have that kind of faith, don't you? I want to have that kind of belief in the Word of God that leads me to trust in His Word. But the Pharisees thought that they were trusting in His Word. They thought that they were doing what God had told them to do. But you notice how Jesus specifically points out where they have gone wrong. In John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus talking about the the scribes and the Pharisees, how much they love the Bible. John chapter 5 and verse 39, it says, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. He's not demeaning their searching of the Scriptures. He's not demeaning the fact that, that they're searching for eternal life through them. But then he goes on to say this, And these are they which testify of me. All of that to me. The lamb that is sacrificed is to point to me. This is why when John the Baptist comes out into the wilderness preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of this is to point us to a knowledge of God and love with God for ourselves. But then it goes on to say in verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Since you've missed the point. You were busy going about your work in the the synagogues. And in fact, the synagogues were also the places where they had a private education for their children to learn from Scripture. They had schooling set up. They had all the things organized so that they could know the Bible And yet, they miss Jesus. And Jesus says, you study it, but this is all to point to me. And he goes on to tell them, when they're looking at him as as breaking the Sabbath, he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Do you not realize that that the Sabbath is about me? I'm your creator. When they're they're struggling with, with tithing and different things like that, Jesus continually points them to himself as the purpose of all of it. 
And so for us, as we face times that are, are perilous, the Bible's really clear what's coming on this planet. In fact, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 4. 2 Thessalonians chapter 4 is a crucial passage uh, that reveals to us uh, end-time events that will take place. In 2 Thessalonians, sorry, chapter 2, in verse 3, Paul is talking to the Thessalonians. He says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for the day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You see what's going to take place in the end. There's going to come a power that tries to exalt itself to the place of God and to take God's place in our experience. And if we aren't careful, we who are Bible-believing, Seventh-day Adventist Christians who worship on the Seventh-day Sabbath can still have the principles of this power in our own hearts, though we may not be overtly a part of this system. If we don't fall in love with Jesus, if we don't fall in love with the truth, then we're going to miss everything. Look down in verse 9. It says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, we talked about two weeks ago how if you speak with the tongues of men and of angels but don't have love, then you're really a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Have any of you been reading that chapter? Such a blessing to me. And then it goes on to say, if you have all faith, if you know all, have all knowledge and know all mysteries, if you have faith to move mountains, but don't have love, then you're nothing. You realize that these are things that Satan is able to counterfeit. He can do miraculous things. He can do marvelous things. So often we're looking for God's power to show up in miraculous and huge ways. But Satan can do that. He can call fire down from heaven. In fact, look over in Revelation chapter 13. In Revelation chapter 12, it tells us that the devil will deceive the whole world. In Revelation chapter 13, it talks about how he will cause fire to come down from heaven. And then verse 14, or verse 13 says that he promised... He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He deceives the whole world. He, he leads the whole world into worship of a false. And how do we avoid that? Back in 2 Thessalonians, he tells us specifically that those who aren't deceived are those who receive the love of the truth. Back in uh, chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, And for this reason God will send, the, uh, sorry, verse 10, And with all righteous, unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of of the truth, that they might be saved. It's the question for us today. Do we love Jesus with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength? That's what they chanted every week as they went into their synagogues. 
They would go through the Shema. They would say, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. They went through the motions of it. They had the forms and the symbols of it. And yet, they missed Jesus. And you go on down and you find that as Jesus is taken to that Roman pure procurator because the Sanhedrin didn't have the authority to put Jesus to death. He was there and, and, and they thought that the way to accuse him would be to accuse him of trying to be king, of accusing him to try to, to set up that Jewish kingdom again in Jerusalem. Because as a Roman procurator, he would want to avoid that at all costs. And so they began to say he's trying to act like he's the king. And, and even Pilate himself looks at Jesus and recognizes a loving, innocent person. But the Jews miss it. And so when Pilate says, should I give you the king of the Jews or should I give you Barabbas? They all cry out, give us Barabbas. Barabbas was the one who had been a part of insurrections, who had risen up to fight for them. They wanted somebody who would fight and preserve their selfish desires more than they wanted the king himself. And they chose for Jesus to be crucified. So in my life, I have to ask the question, in my worship, in my coming to church, in my studying the Bible, is it about Jesus? Is it about falling in love with Jesus? Am I beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Or am I trying in my own zeal without knowledge to set up my own righteousness and neglecting the righteousness of Jesus? Jesus Christ is the end of the law. He is the goal of all of Scripture. And He wants to fill us with His Holy Spirit and to transform our hearts and our lives. One final uh, powerful quote from the 1888 materials. It's a powerful look at, at what is true for us today just like it was for the Jews. It says, The remnant church is called to go through an experience similar to that of the Jews. And the true witness who walks up and down in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks has a solemn message to bear to his people. Saying that the people in the end times are going to go through a similar experience as at the first advent when they missed Jesus. A legal religion, it goes on to say, has been thought quite the correct religion for this time. But it is a mistake. The rebuke, of Christ is the, it, the rebuke of Christ to the Pharisees is applicable to those who have lost from the heart their first love. Are we radically in love with Jesus? Is that why we do what we do? Or are we just going through the motions seeking to establish our own righteousness? A cold legal religion can never lead souls to Jesus, for it is a loveless, Christless religion. When fastings and prayers are practiced in self-justifying spirit, they are abominable to God. Do you know the Pharisees prayed on the corners that they had phylacteries, that they, they were earnest about their seeking after God? This past week I was reading about Martin Luther. When he went into the monastery, he would wake up at 2 a.m. to begin praying. And he would pray for seven hours throughout the day. He would also search his heart and confess all of his sins, sometimes confessing for up to six hours at a time. But all of it, he finally recognized, was empty because he was missing the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
The solemn assembly for worship, the round of religious ceremonies, the external humiliation, the imposed sacrifice, these things call attention to the observer of rigorous duties, saying, this man is entitled to heaven, but it is all a deception. Faith in Christ will be the means whereby the right spirit and motive will actuate the believer, and goodness and heavenly mindedness will proceed from him who looks unto Jesus, the author and finisher of his faith. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the picture in Scripture is that of a final revolution that's coming on this planet, a final reformation that takes place not by force, not by means of arms, but that comes place by a transformation of hearts where we let our light shine by the good works that we do because of the love that Jesus has placed in our hearts. This is what God is longing to do for this planet. But it can only happen, it can only be motivated as I look to Jesus and I fall in love with Jesus and I recognize the love that he has for me and I stop trying to create my own righteousness and I cling to my Savior. That's what he's wanting to do for us. He's wanting to pour out his Holy Spirit on us to transform our hearts. I want to just invite you, if it's your desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to to cling to Jesus and His righteousness, I just want to invite you to kneel with me in prayer this morning. Jesus, here we are. We recognize that there's coming an overmastering deception on this planet. And God... We recognize that sometimes we just go through the motions. We come to church, we listen to the Bible, we study the Bible, we talk about the Bible, but we want to really know you for ourselves. We want to cling to you. We want to trust in nothing else. We want to really believe that nothing we can possibly do could ever save us, but that only the righteousness of Jesus will merit anything throughout eternity. Oh God, would you help us to seek you with all of our hearts, to genuinely love you with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. Would you enable us to see the beauty of the King of Kings who was born some 2,000 years ago so that we might have life. Thank you for that infinite gift that you have given us. May we cling to the righteousness of Jesus, I pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.